The Guardian. Michael Morpurgo's novel War Horse tells the terrible story of the First World War through the eyes of a horse and his boy, that's Joey and Albert. Originally published in the 1980s, it was slow to take off, but it has become one of the great success stories of 21st century children's literature, thanks to a national theatre production with amazing puppets, which has travelled all over the world. And it's about to get even bigger with the release of a Steven Spielberg film. Michael explains to me, Claire Armistead, where the story came from, why he decided to put horses at the heart of it, and why, nearly a century on, we still talk about the Great War. It was the first book I ever wrote that meant a lot to me. And it meant a lot to me because the roots of it certainly come from my own past. I was born in 1943, so of course nothing to do with the First World War. But being a kid growing up... Um, in London, in Earl's Court, just after the Second World War. One of the first lessons I think I learnt was that war doesn't just break buildings, it breaks lives. I mean, I played in the bomb sites, and that was all rather lovely, and it, and it was lovely too. They're brilliant, absolutely brilliant uh, playgrounds. But I was maybe five, six, seven before I really began to understand and realise that something had gone on here which uh, had traumatised the people. How did I know that? Because my mother used to get very, very upset every time my Uncle Peter was mentioned. And Uncle Peter had been killed in the Second World War. He was in, in the RAF, Bomber Command. And his plane had crashed, and he'd been killed and died age 21. So growing up as a little boy, I looked at a photograph of this young man in an RAF uniform, and he looked like Rupert Brooke. He was a very beautiful man. He was an actor. He went to Rada. And, and he died before he ever became a father or a grandfather, before he'd ever had a life, really. And I picked up on the grief and the sadness that my mother felt all her life. And it never went away, this loss of a brother that young. And I had written lots of stories in my late 20s, early 30s, about kids in school, kids in families, in a way trying to appeal to that, um, particularly boys, to try to get them reading. I was a teacher and I, I was very motivated to get them reading. And it was only after I moved down to Devon to start the project that my wife began called Farms for City Children. And we moved to this little place called Iddesley in the middle of nowhere and for the first time settled. So I wasn't a teacher just going from school to school every two or three years. We'd settled in a place to do this project. And I began to be interested in, in the village itself and the people who'd lived there, uh, the people who planted the trees, who dug the ditches, who'd made the hedges. And the hedges were, um, by and large, from Saxon times and the trees were all planted 200 years ago and the ditches had been dug year after year after year by so-and-so's grandfather, so-and-so's uncle, and I began to get this pattern of, of this place and who had made it. And in all this, I discovered there were three old men, octogenarians, living in the village, um, who'd been to the First World War, then walked into the pub one day and got talking to one of them, who told me he'd been to the First World War with horses. And it was the first time, I think, I'd ever considered that kind of research that kind of stimulus as being the base for a novel. But I was so persuaded by what he said and by the emotion in his voice when he was talking of his memories. He said one thing, which I shall never forget, which in a way was the beginning of it all. He said, what you have to understand is that we were all 17, 18. We didn't know anything. We never 
We never left the village really until now, and then we find ourselves in France fighting this enemy who, you know, we never met a German, but that's what we were all doing. And we didn't do it for the flag, we didn't even do it for the regiment, we did it for the people on the right and left of us. We kind of were all pals together and supporting each other. And we were all terrified, he says, we were all terrified. But you can't talk about it, because there's a kind of solidarity about that that you don't talk about it, because everyone's feeling it. So he says, I used to go to the horse lines at night to feed my horse, stroke his neck, and he'd be munching away at his oats and his sack. And I talked to him. I talked to my horse. But to me, he wasn't a horse. He was a person. He was a friend. And he wasn't being sentimental, and he wasn't being nostalgic. He was talking truth to me, and I recognized that. And then went back home and immediately, I think the next day, I think, rang up the Imperial War Museum and said, do you know how many horses went to the First World War from this country. And they said, um, about a million, but we're not sure. I said, well, how many came back? And they said, 65,000. And I did my sums and I realized that's roughly the same as the men, number of men that this country lost, our side lost in that war. We know that roughly 10 million soldiers died on all sides, so that's probably 10 million horses. And the suffering they'd done, they'd done together. The dying they'd done together, they would died in exactly the same way. It was disease, it was exhaustion, it was drowning in mud, it was torn by wire, it was blown apart by shells. All that happened to their flesh and our flesh. And I found that um, very telling. And it was from that that I decided that I would try to write a story of the, the universality of the suffering in that war. I didn't want to write from a British side or a German side or a French side or a Canadian side. I just thought, try and have a pair of eyes on this conflict, which listens to all sides, and the horse provided that. And so the horse became both the narrator and the great innocent victim. Do you think it would have been as successful if it had focused on the human story rather than the horse story? Well, I wrote another book, Private Peaceful, which does focus on the human story, and it's, I think as a book it's been more successful than more horse until now. I think all the horse does is, is allow allows young people access to this horror, which they don't know much about. I mean, the First World War is taught in secondary school. It's part of history now. It's, it's really a long, long time ago. The last soldier, Harry Patch, was it? He died last year. And in fact, the last American soldier, funnily enough, died on the opening night of War Horse on Broadway, on the very, very day, which is very strange. So it is history now. There's no one alive who, who really remembers it. So how do you evoke that? How do you go back? And you can do it, certainly, by having books, you know, diaries written by soldiers who were there. You can certainly do it by visiting the place. I've been time and time again to, to Belgium or to France or whatever, the, to the battlefields, and you see kids coming over in coach loads. But the problem with coach loads and lots of graves, it's the same problem we have with the Holocaust. It's just so huge. How do you get your head into something like that? Well, with the Holocaust, you know, thank God for Anne Frank. I mean, Anne Frank, she's one, just one out of the six million. But it enables us to get into that story. And I think that's what's important. Whether it's man or beast actually doesn't matter a lot. It's who witnessed the suffering. That's the one we care about, the one in the 10 million, the one in the six million. And whether you're a child or an adult, and that's what's been marvelous about this play, because it shows us it's both. We yearn, we long for the war to be over, for there to be peace. We, we long for there to be reunion, resolution, uh, for the pain to be over and the horror to be over. And whether the, the main victim is a horse or a soldier, I think it's, people know it's the same. We still refer to it as the Great War, 
And yet this Great War is probably outside the great-grandparents' lifetimes of the children yep. you're writing for. How much longer are we going to know it as the Great War? I mean, we didn't, I didn't, when I was at school, I didn't get taught about the Boer War particularly. I just think, um, no, to me it's, and I think to most of us, it's the metaphor for all wars, really. I mean, yes, it's the Great War, it's the First World War. But actually, of all the wars that we can think of, it was the most elementally stupid. When you go to a colonial war, you go to a, the Boer War, you can look back on it, you know, with huge regret and that we were ever involved in such a war. But the First World War was this, it's just powerful people, emperors, kings, politicians, resorting to violence in order to discover who's the most important European power. Goodness sakes, they're all related. The Germans are all related to us and the royal family. It's unbelievable stuff. It was simply pride. Who wants to be top nation? So of all the wars, when you have men in their millions lined up, digging holes in the ground, and then these hopeless series of attacks which went on four or five years, whatever it was, uh, getting up and running into barbed wire, running into machine gun fire, and you know, tens of thousands being killed in a day. It's the madness of war carried to an extreme. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.